Good morning, Disciples Church. Happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. I praise God for your priority to gather with the saints this morning to worship our good Father in heaven and to study His Holy Word. While occasionally I might find Father's Day or Mother's Day in between uh, sermon series that we're doing, it's, it's more often than not that we're right in the middle of a book study. And so, uh, men, I'm going to bless you today by staying with our series and preaching James chapter 1, verse 5 through 8. Um, and uh, I pray that will be a blessing to you instead of a, a topical sermon filled with a bunch of my ideas about what it means to be a dad. So God is good, and he's prepared a good word for us today so we can go to him. While you turn there, James chapter 1, let me pray. Father, I thank you for this day that you have made. I I praise you, Father. You you are a good, good Father. You have sought us out in our lostness, in our wickedness, in our enslavement, and you have set us free. You've adopted us as sons and daughters. With you, we will forever reign. As we just sang, we thank you. We thank you for all that you are and all that you are doing. What a joy it is to know you and to be known by you. To be entrusted with your written word to study and to know. To be entrusted with the call to preach it this morning. To some beloved people that you would move mightily in our lives, that you would convict us of sin, that you would ready us for what's ahead. More than anything, God, you stir our affections for you, that our joy, that our praise, our strength, our purpose would be all in you. So, Father, move mightily in your word into these lives today that we'd be faithful with what you entrust to us and ready to serve you as you call. In Jesus' name, amen. James chapter 1, 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James' aim in this letter is that faith would endure, would work, that it would endure hardship and And that it would mature in steadfastness, as we saw last week. That it would persevere progressively in sanctification. There is an already and not yet aspect to who we are in Christ that we have to rightly understand in these things. And so I want to start there today. I want to actually peek back at verse 4 Put that under our feet again as we move forward in verse 5 through 8. Look with me, James 1, 4. He says, let steadfastness have its full effect 
that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Praise God that none of that is able to be done by us alone, and that that's not the expectation on you. It's speaking of sanctification. And, and let me define that word sanctify. Sometimes we use big words in church. We're like, yeah, I don't really know if I know what that means. Sanctify is to set apart or make holy. What we need to understand is those of us who are in Christ, who have trusted our lives to Christ, been saved by God in this way, are made holy in Christ. We are perfect, complete, and lacking nothing in Christ before God. 1 Corinthians 6.11 You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In our salvation, our rebirth, there is a holiness, a sanctification that makes it possible for a holy God to look upon you and not see your wickedness and your sin. Instead, what God sees is Christ. He sees his perfection, his holiness, his completeness. And that's what gives us a relationship with God, is who we are in Christ. Praise God for this, amen? Jesus lacks nothing. And therefore, what he has done in our place is lacking nothing. Is perfect, is complete. As it was declared on the cross, it is finished. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that I was filthy, undeserving of any grace, deserving of wrath, of judgment. Not in maybe how I stack up next to another guy, but how I stack up in comparison to the holiness of God, the, the ultimate standard. Christ alone did what I would not do, what I could not do. He exchanged his perfection for my condemnation. In Christ, we are sanctified. We are set apart and made holy. That's the already part. Let's talk about the not yet part. We are sanctified. And yet, in our infancy of faith, we are very young and very immature Awakened to the light in salvation, but now needing to grow, needing to mature in faith and godliness and understanding what it means to turn from temptation of sin instead of giving into it like we once did and, and to honor God with our lives moving forward. This is what we call progressive sanctification. The work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to convict, to draw forth the truth of the word, the work of God in our lives to, to mature and grow us. Once we are freed from slavery to sin, saved by Jesus, we are now to learn and to grow and to mature in godliness, in Christ-likeness. This is progressive sanctification. This is the still happening part of our journey. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all, with unveiled face so that unveiling has happened in Christ behold the glory of the Lord 
are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So there is a a constant and consistent growing and maturing that's happening. So this is why we study God's word like we do. This is why we have shepherds, pastors that we, that we trust and look to to lead us and to divide God's word rightly. This is why we have the body of Christ, brothers and sisters in the church, why we have a church. If you don't have a church home, you, you, you are adopted into God's family and yet acting like an orphan. According to the commands of Scripture, you are to have a regular church home, to be a committed member. Heard someone on the phone say, talking about some accountability in a different situation, with a different group. Oh yeah, I think, I think he, he kind of claims two churches. I'm like, that's an, an impossibility. You, you can't be accountable to two groups of elders at the same time. You, you, you're a committed member of a church. So maybe in transition or, or, or moving or something's happening where that can happen. But, but we need the body of Christ. We need to be known and we need to know each other so that we can grow and not veer away. So no matter your wealth, no matter your health, no matter your looks, no matter your social status, your age, we all have a journey of growing in sanctification and a call on our lives, church, to put our faith to work. To not hang it like a baptism certificate on the wall and point at that like that's our faith and then move on. But to work out our faith, to, to live it out daily and grow and mature. And if, you, if you're feeling bad, you're like, man, I feel like I've wasted so much time. I, I'm less concerned about that and I'm more concerned about where you're at today and what tomorrow looks like. And what it looks like for you going forth that's what repentance is. Repentance is turning from something you acknowledge is not honoring God and doing what you believe is honoring God. So join us or join a healthy God-fearing church and get involved and grow and mature in these ways. This is the matter before us. James is giving this clarity. He's going to continue to speak of faith at work and what that looks like. And today is going to warn us against double-mindedness and, and doubt reigning in our lives. And so with that, let's dig into today's text, that foundation under our feet. He starts in verse 5 with these words, If any of you lacks wisdom. So again, I don't know if you've read verse 4 last week and then peeked ahead to verse 5 this week. And we talked about us being complete and then it talks about us lacking. So it sounds like that's really... Well, now, now hopefully you understand what, what that is. Complete in Christ for salvation. And yes, as an immature believer, lacking much and needing to grow and mature and, and, and believe and, 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 and live out my faith. And so he's acknowledging that's real. And so when you're lacking wisdom, here's what you're to do. Well, before we get to what to do, let's just talk about wisdom for a second. Even that, sometimes we misunderstand. Wisdom defined is this. It's the soundness of the action or decision that you make regarding the application of experience, knowledge, or, or good judgment. So what you have to make sure you don't confuse is wisdom for knowledge. Knowledge is data and information that you know. Okay? Okay. Wisdom is a right application of what you know. It's discernment to do 
the right thing based on what you now know. That's wisdom. James is saying that it is possible to lack wisdom. To have a lot of knowledge, but then still lack discernment and good decision making of wisdom of how you honor God with these things. So it's critical for a solid and ongoing faith journey that we don't lack wisdom. That we don't be taught good and right things and then act out in a different way. Listen to the definition of faith. Faith is going to interject itself here. It's important. The definition we're given of faith in Hebrews 11, 1 and 2 says this. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that What is seen is not made of things that are visible. Our faith is based on a knowledge God's given us of himself through general revelation, as we learned this last midweek lesson. If you're not joining us on midweek, you're missing out on a great series. General revelation of God in creation reveals himself to us by writing the law of the Lord on our hearts. We all have that general revelation. And then in special revelation is God speaking of old, or writing his word to give to us. This is his revelation to us. It's the knowledge that he's given us about himself in the world. So our faith's based on that. But a lot of that we can't see, and so that's the faith part, is, is I'm trusting in that. I'm believing him. It's a confidence in God and a conviction that what he's told us and promised us will be is true. Godly wisdom helps us reorient to what is true in a world full of lies and deception. So we want godly wisdom. We need godly wisdom. And one of the big reasons why we need godly wisdom is because our feelings are corrupt. The Bible clearly says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it. Jeremiah 17.9. And yet, so many Christians are caught up in this idea often of saying, I feel like the Lord's leading me to do this or that. And while the Holy Spirit does prod and lead and convict, the Holy Spirit never does that not in accordance with His Word. And so we, we must always check ourselves and be checked by others who love us and know the word enough to check our feelings i'm feeling like i should do this i feel like god's leading me to do that well let's test that feeling to confirm that it's the holy spirit working in accordance with the word and it's not your corrupt heart or flesh getting you to do what you want to do we can't just pull this like holy trump card and say i feel like the lord's leading me to and then we just go do it. And that all, all too often that is a regular practice in the church. And it, it's misguided that it lacks godly wisdom. It's not discernment and decision making that's based on the truths of God. It's based on feelings. And often our feelings are very corrupt. So we've got to check that. We've got to love each other enough to, to, to invite each other in and, 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 and to be obedient to God. And say, hey, check me on this. 
True wisdom, church, is not out there. It's based on what God's given us here. And so we stand fast on the truth of the word. Again, this is much of the anchor and basis of our current midweek sermon series on presuppositional apologetics, how we make a defense for our faith based on the authority of the word. And in that, we're, we're really pointing out a lot of the ways that people do apologetics that's not necessarily biblical. So we're kind of we're learning how to do it and learning maybe some of the ways that are unbiblical about how we would witness and testify to unbelievers. If you're interested in knowing how to defend your faith or share your faith better, join us for a midweek for our summer series. It's, it's a journey, and I, I promise you it will be a good one for you. Church, God is the source of all true wisdom. And we're desperate for him to have good discernment and direction in anything. One of the great scriptures of all time that reminds us of this often, it's one I would encourage you to memorize and to have constantly to preach to yourself throughout your days, is Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 through 7. To trust in the Lord with all your heart and to lean not on your own understanding. See that? Check your feelings. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. That we would not be wise, wisdom, in our own eyes, but fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So intermixed in this is a necessity for faith, for trusting God. Trusting his promises, trusting his word, trusting in him in much of the things we can't see or the things we don't understand, especially when those things are raging against us and the world's not working right. Oh, I pray these truths would would keep your feet on the solid rock that is your God in the midst of the storm. Consider how Job responds to bad counsel. In the midst of his testimony in the book of Job, Job 28, some, some counselors gave him some foolish advice. And so here's his reply in Job 28, 12 through 15. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the, the land of the living. The deep says it is not in me, and the sea says it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. And yet, how many people who deny God sinfully go to pursue the deeps of creation looking for wisdom, or will spend a fortune to hire the right old man to, or wise lady to teach them their ways? Skip down to verse 20. Where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all the living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abdom and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters its measure by measure, when he made a decree for the rain, and a way for the lightning of the thunder. Then he saw it and declared it. He established it, searched it out. 
And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. I pray that in the most simple way, as we struggle with sin in our flesh and our pride, that we would not be right in our own eyes, but we would humble ourselves to pursue the wisdom of God based on a right understanding of truth according to Scripture. James sees how central wisdom is for the Christian life, so he says if you're lacking it, what does he say to do? He says, let him ask God. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God. What should we do, church, if we need anything? We should go to God first and foremost. James says, let him ask God. Now in this, this is not again another recommendation. It's not, hey, you might consider this as something you would do. It is an imperative verb. It is the command in this part of the text. It is what he's directing and commanding believers to do. When you see that you're lacking in these ways, you go to God. And this is huge. As we study James, as we hear this direct command, if we are lacking wisdom, that we go to God. Go to God how? We go to God in prayer. Go to God's word. What is prayer? Well, according to our Word of Truth Catechism, question 102, what is prayer? Prayer is pouring out our hearts to God in praise, thanksgiving, confession of sin, expressing our request to Him while submitting to His sovereign will. Prayer is communicating with God the Father through God the Son by the power of God the Holy Spirit. Our prayers are Trinitarian. Prayer is less about God inviting us to join. I'm sorry, it's less about inviting God to join us and much more about us joining God and what He is doing or is getting ready to do. That's what our prayer life does. It, prayer is, is less about getting God to do what I want. And it's more about getting myself reoriented to do what God wants me to do. Here it is. It's acknowledging that he is the source. That's the gift of prayer in the midst of lacking anything. Is you're reminded who the source is. That we're dependent on him. So why should we run to God in prayer when we realize we're lacking anything? Why would we pray often and pray full of faith? Because of who God is and what he's promised to do. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Who God gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. I want you to be overwhelmed this morning at this reality, that this declaration, that when you go to him, he will give generously and he'll do it without reproach. Why, why is that an overwhelming reality? Number one, because God is generous, he's patient, he's gracious. But, but it's overwhelming to me in that he continues to give in this way. Because he's already given me so much. When you read a text like that, I, I, I pray that's how you see it. I pray you're, 
your heart's reminded, or it reminds you of the place that you're at. I'm so, so blessed. I'm, I'm already so full of grace. John 1.16, from his fullness, we've all, speaking to the church, received grace upon grace. Fullness of his grace, blessing after blessing, that we are the possessors of it. We have received it. It's not coming. We have it. Paul will say in Ephesians 1, Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed in us with the heavenly realms, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You are possessor of every spiritual blessing when you're in Christ. Dump truck loads of blessing. Innumerable to, to, to count or to understand. And I just ask you today, do you know that in your heart? Do you know that's who you are in Christ? So that then when you read, when you're going to him in prayer, that he's going to continue to give generously without reproach, that you'll just be like overwhelmed at that reality. Because who am I to ask God for anything? I've already been given so much in Christ. And yet his word, he's... He will be generous, and he'll do it without reproach. And yet, church, we can struggle again with wisdom. You might know that truth about who you are in Christ, and that you're blessed, truly blessed beyond measure, and yet are we not guilty sometimes of not acting in wisdom, but coming back to God like as an ungrateful child? God, if you could just bless me here. God, I just need a little blessing in my life. And we look at the horizontal things that are happening and, and we just lose sight of who we are in him. And we start to put so much weight on the temporary, on the here and now, on the things before us. And, and in some ways, I think, I think we misunderstand who we are in Christ. I, I love the... The prayer of Aaron's blessing in the Old Testament. It's, it's one of the most beautiful prayers, and it's one that I think we can love to recite. If you don't remember what it is, you'll, you'll remember it as soon as I start saying it. Numbers, chapter 6, 20 through 20, 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Love that, don't we? And what we need to hear in James today is he'll continue to do that. But I want us to have a grounding in that we already have that. That the blessing has come that in Christ is the fulfillment of all those things. In Christ's life, death, and resurrection, he has blessed and kept us. He's made his face shine upon us. How much more could God make his face shine upon us than by taking on flesh, than the face of Christ, God in flesh, to come do what we could not do for us? To be gracious to us. How could, he, how could he be more gracious to me than what he's done for me on the cross of Calvary? 
His grace upon grace has been lavished upon my life. Church, I want us to see how blessed we are. I want us to just be overwhelmed at what God has done in salvation so that we're not like that ignorant, selfish child that comes back and goes, God, if you're a good God, then you're going to do this or do that. But that in this like giddy, (laughs) overwhelmed, Lord, I'm so blessed. You owe me nothing, and yet you've commanded me to come to you in your word and prayer. And so here I come, and here's my request, and I'm lacking in this, or I'm struggling with And I know that you're going to give me all that I need. (laughs) what does it mean when it says he'll do it without reproach it's it's pretty big It, it means the wrath of God doesn't sit on us who are in Christ it means Christ has taken that on him on our behalf God will not come at us with wrath with condemnation with reproach you know that a thing your kids do and they do it again and again and again and eventually you just run out of patience and grace and love and then just the wrath comes out. <laughs> and it's sinfully beyond good discipline and rebuke. Neighbors are dialing the phone. He won't do that. Romans 8.1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's important because that we, that we get this because we Christians must know that, our, that anything we're encountering that's, that's a struggle, that suffering is not God's wrath on us. It's not God punishing you. It might be the natural consequences of this world. You, you broke the law and now you're facing jail time or taxes or whatever, that those are natural consequences of the world we still live in, the broken world. But you need to understand it's not like God, and, and like he's got this wrath on you, this punishment. No, Christ has paid for all of that. Past, present, future sin. Christ paid for it. If you think God's bringing his wrath on you for something you've done, and then now you don't understand who you are in Christ. He will not come at you with reproach. That's, that's back to the bigness and the beauty and the power of the gospel and what he's done, who we are in him. Now, God will discipline us firmly. <laughs> he will mature us and refine us, sanctify us in his refining fire. But those are good things. Those are good things. Those are the things that a loving father does for his children. Fathers, it is loving to be engaged in your children's life, to not just engage them occasionally, but to be engaged. It is loving to lead them and discipline them unto the Lord. What is unloving is to set aside your role as father, to be too busy with life, to engage them regularly with leadership and love and discipline. It is unloving to set down the role of father to pick up the role of friend. 
God did not do this to us. He did not get too busy. He does not set aside his loving role to discipline us and to shape us. But one thing he will not do is come at us with reproach. Fathers, we need to be mindful of not letting our flesh cause us to rear up to those entrusted to our care in sin. We not rear up in sin, but we would love and lead them with gentleness and with faithfulness and with discipline. That we not stir up our children's flesh, but train them and nourish them and disciple them in the instruction of the Lord. Paul makes this so clear in Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I just want to take a moment and praise God for the work that is happening in and through Disciples Church in this area. We Part of our reformation as a historic church was to address a problem that had become rampant in the church in the last couple decades, which is that women were the predominant active participants in church. And we just saw not only is that unbiblical, but it was largely due to the fact that pastors were not doing a good job to preach, teach, and lead men. We'd coddle women and be excited to have more people attending and would... So we just made a commitment. We're just going to do a better job of teaching, preaching, and leading men. Cowardly men will not like it and walk away. But true men of God will lean in and grow with us and mature and be rebuked and be refined and work through the disciplines of the Lord to mature to their calling of what it is to be a godly man and husband and father. And the fruit of this has been marvelous. So many of our men are leading in ways and so many of our homes are now transformed because the role of the man is being played out as God instructs it to be. And I just, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for just humility in our men to be willing to say, I've been missing the mark. I've been selfish, I've been sinful, but I'm here. Let's go forward. Again, I'm not concerned about where you've been as much as I'm concerned about where you go with us moving forward. And I can almost promise you that your wife and your children, that that will matter the most to them as well. Watch a lot of guys sit and flounder and look at the ground for years going, man, I was such a bad dad, such a bad husband. I'm like, God gave you another day, right? So let's go. Let's dig in. Let's start over. Let's be willing to be humble. Be willing to learn from men who are younger than you, but but wiser and more mature in the word. Be willing to to serve and do jobs that are not your favorite thing. And I love that. I love seeing our men not gifted at all in certain things, but willing to serve because we have a need to serve there. And it's just, it's been a joy. So I praise God for that. If you're considering our church, I would consider you say, hey, I'd like to know who some of those core men are. I want to ask them about their journey. And um, what you'll hear is just that, a humble journey of just God at work, refining, shaping, molding, and growing us. And ask some of the wives too. Praise God. Praise God for his work in all of his people to, to give us a growing fervor to go to him when we see we're lacking anything, to humble ourselves and to, to go to our Father and say, help. You're the source. And so, so James is saying, God's not going to withhold from you. 
He noticed the end of verse 5, and it will be given him. He will provide the wisdom we need. He will do his work in and through us. He's not commissioning us. He's not saving us, preparing us, and commissioning us to send us to do a work that he won't finish. But we must remain dependent on him every step of the way. And we cannot make any progress in this life or in sanctification without him. So, so it seems so simple. You lack faith, go to God. Yeah, next. No, not next. Slow down. Do we do that? Lack wisdom, go to God. Yes. Go to God, sit at his feet. Sit before his word. Rally around mature brothers and sisters to help, help me grow and mature. Hear God's word today. Take it into your soul. Build your life on it. So I want to to give you a passage to read. I don't have enough time to read it this morning, but it is so good. A lot of people have said this text is is the Proverbs 2 of the New Testament. Proverbs 2, 1 through 15. Go read that later this week. Make a note of it. Proverbs 2, 1 through 15. The building of godly counsel of the area of wisdom. But let's continue to move forward. Verse 6. He adds clarity, he says, but let him ask in faith. Ask in faith, he means ask God with confidence in God. With the faith that God gave you at salvation. The faith you didn't have before you were saved. Now you have faith, true faith in God. Exercise it, put it to work. Don't go to God in prayer without faith. Believing that God hears you, that he loves you and has a perfect plan for you. Faith in God is trusting God. The opposite of faith is in God is trusting in yourself. So the truest marker of your faith is your faith at work. So when you're saying, where is my faith and how am I doing? Church, is your faith at work? Is, is it moving? Is it mobilizing? Our faith at work is trusting God. It's clinging to God. It's standing fast on His promises despite the troubles we face. Despite the storms that rage. So I just want to pause for you and just ask you, are you doing that? Are you, are you walking by faith and not by sight? Are you trusting Him despite whatever is coming at you? That He's at work and he's his plan will be done but he loves you he's not absent he's not forgotten you when we walk by sight we are dependent on man's ability and our circumstances going well but when we walk by faith we're depending on god I believe James is emphasizing And he's going to continue to do this throughout his letter. How central faith is for all of life. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. So so what is doubt? Doubt is a feeling of uncertainty or a lack of conviction. 
If faith is certainty and hope in God and his promises, then doubt is uncertainty and a lack of hope and conviction in God and his promises. And, and they don't live together. They can't. You, you can't be on both sides of that fence. You're either trusting God or you're not. The doubt is not to have anything under your feet. You're, and it's likened to what James is saying here. You're tossed about by the waves and the blowing of random events and circumstances. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he uses almost the identical language. He talks about the role of pastors to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And the goal in this is that we would attain the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to unto mature manhood. What is that? To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Are your feet on the rock? Are you trusting God and his truth revealed in his word, his promises? Or are you easily swayed by lies and deception of the world around you? When God is not trusted, we will turn to lies and man-made schemes and then we'll be undone. You begin to believe the, the world's message for you and you're caught up in it and you'll be undone. You'll flounder. You'll stray. And, and can I just say that this is coming at you and your beloved and your household more than it's ever come. I mean, to get off into just nonsense and just crazy stuff, you used to have to really go get to know the Dewey Decimal System at the library and just read some really random authors. But now, that stuff's pumped into your household by the hundreds of thousands of dollars daily. Just, just evil, wicked agenda stuff documentaries and, and people claiming just nonsense. Believe this and go here and have this or go there and have that. It's coming at you in worldview. It's coming at you and what your kids are seeing. And so how do we know how to navigate all that? How do I know? Well, that, thing's, that documentary is really convincing. Look at all the... Or, or, or that, that belief, that system that seems to really be right. How do I, how do I rectify all that? We, we got one place for truth got to take it back to God's word. And so, if you've been feeling that way, listen carefully to the last moments of the sermon. Look, look with me. If you've been feeling like you're undone, like you're just all over the place, and doubts creeped in, and you're grabbing hold of that. But, but listen to the warning that comes in verse 7 and 8. For that person, person who doubts instead of believes, must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is like a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James is simply saying that the person who practices doubt more than faith is not a person of faith. You're likely, the faith you claim to have is likely superficial. 
it's, it's not given by God and rooted in you in who you are in Christ. It's, it's grabbed hold of by religion or by some practice of old. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Well, what does he mean there? He says, basically what he's saying is that if when you go to God in prayer and you don't believe that God's hearing you, loves you, you don't believe in God truly, then it's like writing a letter that you never mail. Sure, you said the words, but if you don't believe in the one you're sending it to, did you really, really say that prayer to God? Now, he's omnipresent, he hears, he knows, surely. But we're not talking about that, we're talking about your faith. So, why are you going to receive anything if you're not really going to God in prayer? If you're not really trusting Him? If what you have is superficial, is, is religion, it's not true trust, it's... And then again, a way we measure that is just how often are you just constantly filled with doubt, undone, tossed all around. Uh, we could be likened to ancient Israel in this state. Elijah rebukes them in 1 Kings 18.21. Elijah came near to the people and said, How long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Your faith is essential. that There is no life with God based on religious Attendance or participation. You must have saving faith. You must truly trust God. That's the only way you know Him. That's the only way you'll continue with Him. And that faith must be exercised like a muscle. Hear the warning here. There's people who think they believe, who claim they believe, but when it comes down to it, they don't believe. And for those who truly don't believe, even though they might look like they do, the Bible says through and through again and again, they're false disciples. Who God says face the most damning and sobering judgment of all. Jesus himself says in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The one who proves their faith is truly saving faith because it's a faith at work, because it's a faith that obeys, because it's a faith that trusts God. It's not a faith that's hung on a baptism certificate from 1982 on a wall, and that's what you think you're good with God with, and then you move on. Now, do we do any work to have salvation with God? Not one iota. He saves. He gives a saving faith. But the evidence of that faith is trusting God. And it will endure. It will finish. And, and yet these people want to hang their hat on stuff they did back in the day. Or, and he says, on that day many will say, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Do many mighty works in your name? According to man, that's a pretty impressive resume, is it not? And yet, and here the, the sobering, what Jesus says, and yet I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
We must heed James' words today so that we do not carry on as an imposter. You either repent of your sin and trust Jesus or you don't. You are made new in Christ or you're not. Jesus is the Lord of your life or he's not. A double-minded man claims to be a believer but doesn't have real faith and proves to not be one. There is no halfway. God addresses this in Revelation 3.16. Because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I spit you out of my mouth. He's using aggressive language there to love his audience enough that they hear the point. When trials come, a double-minded man doesn't wholesale turn to God and trust Jesus like he should. He trusts man-made remedies and ways and, and doesn't trust that God is sufficient. He doubts. And maybe he tosses in some kind of religious request called a prayer just to be sure to cover all his bases. But that prayer was never really sent if not in faith. This is a man not grounded in faith. This is an unstable man leaning on the ways of the world at the end of the day, trying to add a little bit of God to his recipe. Church, the saved, the redeemed, the adopted by God are devoted to God. We do not look to serve two masters. Jesus himself said, you cannot serve two masters. You will hate one and despise the other. James will later say in chapter 4, verse 4, that friendship with the world is enmity with God. So one of the great, great gifts God can give you today is a clear conviction that maybe up to this day, You've not truly repented and believed, but what you have done is something having to do with religion. You you don't trust God with your life, your marriage, your family, your your days. You, you, You want God to work for you. This is the case. Praise God, maybe today's the day where He finally reveals that to you by which you can truly repent, confess that sin, and trust Him. <laughs> right? Church, I pray you see the scary reality of double minded faith is not faith at all. And if you've tried to walk both roads, then repent and believe and trust Him. Trust Jesus with all of your life, with all of your current circumstances that have you weighted down. Believe in His promises and obey His commands. Trust your most cherished relationships to Him, your most prized possessions to Him. Now, here's the big question maybe some of you are thinking of. Does this mean that doubt will never creep in or show its face in our lives. Pastors, what you're saying is if I have any doubt, I'm out. 
That's not what I'm saying today. Hear that clearly. We all are still at war with our flesh. That is the journey of progressive sanctification. The temptation to doubt and to worry will often show up at our doorstep. The question is, how long do you let it linger there? I want you to hear that being full of faith in God doesn't mean that you don't still battle doubt at times. That you don't still struggle. I mean, Abraham was declared as an example of faith in God's promises, counted righteous. Paul says in Romans 4.20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God. But isn't Abraham one of the ones in his testimony is most known for his wavering? Letting Sarah go, yeah, go hook up with this other guy. Let's get this promise going. Let's... uh, not trusting what God said, I will do this in my time. So what, what that tells us, Sola Scriptura helps us in these things, tells us is that James' warning about having doubt and being double-minded is not a reference to perfection or absolute absence of any doubt, but is more of a lifestyle of belief. It's a true grounding of the heart in trusting God and fighting doubt. The evidence of a heart that is reborn and made new in Christ is one that depends and trusts in God and fights doubt. You believe God is on his throne and believe that he's at work even in the hardest of circumstances. Will we waver And sometimes may even let doubt into the doorway. Sure, yeah. But we do not let doubt move in and make his bed in our hearts. That's the difference. That space belongs to the Lord. Faith and doubt cannot occupy the same space. They're they're too opposite. That's why he's saying being double-minded is not a man of faith. You truly, at the end of the day, are a man of doubt. You don't have faith. So then what fights doubt the best? Growing faith. Your growing faith will throw doubt outside the door. Pick it up by its heels and chuck it out the door. And that's the journey before us. That's why he's saying go to God in prayer. So he's saying be aware of these things. Watch for these things. So how do we grow in faith to close? Three quick things, and, and they're simple and you know them, but are you doing them? Number one, we grow in faith and we fight doubt by feasting on God's word. On God's truths, reminding yourself of God's promises, reading faithful person upon faithful person again and again and again who went through incredibly hard times, who lost their families, who lost their lives, and, and not then letting doubt overwhelm you, but letting faith embolden you. Reminding yourself of God's power, of his sovereignty over creation from the beginning of time and forevermore, that he is victorious. Amen?
That's the word of God. Number two, you embolden your faith by walking together. Don't do this. You can't do this thing alone. And if you're starting to come and you don't have that relationship with anyone else, praise God you're coming. So begin, lean in, get connected, take someone to lunch, come to midweek, build those relationships, begin that journey. So you can be reoriented to gospel truths instead of constantly floundering on your own. Number three, and most importantly, God himself. Learning to walk and talk with God throughout your days is the simplistic, beautiful gift of this passage. To see him as present and not distant. Don't see God as distant. He's present, church. To trust that he is with you and at work in all things. This is how we will walk by faith and not by sight. This is how we grow in wisdom. This is how God is honored in our lives. Amen? I'm going to pray, and we're going to close with that prayer this morning. Um, and I'm just thankful you're here. So let's stand together. We're going to pray, and then I'm going to send you on your way. Father, I thank you for, for this day that you have made, opportunity you've given us to know you, to, to study your word, to, to just be blessed by all that, that, that you are doing and have done. Father, I thank you for... Um, for just your grace, for your work in our lives that we we just desperate for you, Lord, and so that we just would remain um, focused on you, hungry for you, studying your word, growing as the church body. And, and I just thank you for, for the victories that have begun today already and just understanding your word and then now putting them into motion throughout our day. Um, we, we love you, we, we want to worship you, and we trust that you will hold us fast in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.